Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Do you guys remember Barry Sanders? Not Bernie Sanders, Barry Sanders. Uh, Barry Sanders was one of the best running backs of all time, if not like the best running back of all time. He only played in the NFL for 10 years, but in those 10 years, he rushed for over 15,000 yards, averaging over 1,000 yards per year, which if you're not familiar, is a lot for anyone to do. Uh, Only one other person did that many yards in, in 10 years, and he is just un. Real in, in his 10 years, two of those years, he was the Offensive Player of the Year. In 1997, he was the NFL's MVP. He was simply unreal. The NFL calls him the most elusive runner of all time, which basically means you just couldn't tackle the guy, which you could see, like these clips. I, I, there's only, this is the top three from his top 50 list on YouTube. It's 50. It's like 15 minutes long of him just doing this over and over and over again. He was this superstar, right? Now, uh, my football fans out there, how many, how many Super Bowl rings does Barry Sanders have? Zero. Zero. He never even played in the Super Bowl, which is uh, how could this be? Because the guy seems like he's just unstoppable. He's a complete superstar. But you don't have to be a football fan to put the pieces together to realize that football is a team sport. And on a team sport, it doesn't matter if you personally are a superstar. If your team is weak, you're going to lose with them. In fact, on a team sport, if even most of the team is strong, even if there's one player, one key player who is weak, The whole team can suffer as a result. And we've been in this series called Uncomfortable where we've been exploring the uncomfortable, the awkward, and essential challenge of Christian community. And Christian community can be awkward, and it can be challenging, it can be uncomfortable, but it is essential. And over the last few weeks, we've been narrowing in on this topic of accountability. Two weeks ago, Robert talked about uh, how we, as, as followers of Jesus, should be inviting people into our lives, people who will hold us accountable, people who will challenge us and encourage us and call us out on things. And last week, he unpack the value and the the power of vulnerability in these relationships. Today, we're going to be looking at accountability, but from the other direction, where we, as followers of Jesus, are called to hold our brothers and sisters accountable for their actions. That there are times, and it is certainly awkward and certainly uncomfortable, but there are times where we as Christians need to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because believe it or not, following Jesus is a team sport. It is a team sport. And if our brothers and sisters are weak, then, then the whole team can actually experience that loss. And this is what we see in 2 Corinthians 7. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. 
Because here we have the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And don't let the number two fool you. Even though it's called 2 Corinthians, this is not the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It is either the third or even more likely the fourth letter that he wrote to the church, which seems really kind of flattering. Imagine the Apostle Paul, like the one and only Apostle Paul, not writing you once or twice, but like three, four, maybe even five times. It seems like a real uh, sign of honor and prestige. But receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul is a little bit like getting called down to the principal's office. I don't know if any of you remember when you were younger being called down to the principal's office. Maybe some of you this never happened, but you never got called down to the principal's office because they wanted to congratulate you on being such an exceptional student and like here's a medal no you got called down to the principal's office because you were doing something wrong and you were getting in trouble well Paul's letters are a little bit like this most often he's writing because you're doing something wrong and the fact that the Corinthians probably got five of these letters means that they were really messed up and they were there were a lot of issues that were going on in the Corinthian church in this period of time And between Paul writing 1 Corinthians and Paul writing 2 Corinthians, there is a letter that he wrote. And and we're told that is a very severe letter. We don't have the letter. We don't know what the letter said. But we're told that it was a very severe letter where he was confronting them about sin in their lives. And here in 2 Corinthians 7, we get to see why Paul did this, why he found it so important to confront them and how he did it. And that's that's what we're going to look at today is, is why confrontation, confronting our brothers and sisters in Christ is so important and how we can do it. So we start here in chapter seven, verse one. He says, therefore, since we have these promises, pause, what are these promises? Uh, This is one of those Bible study uh, devices and it's super cheesy when you hear people say it, but I'm gonna say it anyway because it's helpful. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should stop and ask, what is it? Therefore, Uh, so we we pause because we see the word therefore, and that's pointing us back to something that he said right before this, right? What are these promises that he's talking about? And he unpacks these. If you go back a few verses into chapter six, back to verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? He's saying there's there's this this disagreement. There's this uh, mutual inconsistency between the temple of God and the temple of idols. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We have these two promises in here. We have the promise of temple and the promise of family. First, we have this this promise that we are the temple. He says, we are the temple of the living God, that he dwells among us and walks among us, that we are the temple of the living God where his power and his presence is on display for the rest of the world. That's one of the promises. The other promise is that we are the family of God, that he is our father and we are his sons and his daughters. And I would love, I would love if every day I woke up with this full expectation that today is another day where I'm going to experience the presence and the power of God on display in my life as I go out as the temple of the living God. And I wish every night I could go to bed saying, man, this was just another day where I got to experience God's love for me as a father, where I got to enjoy this family relationship with my brothers and sisters. These are great promises. 
but I don't other form the temple of the living God. And Robert really unpacked this uh, earlier on in this series in his, his message, Tearing Down Walls. But disunity, if we're, we're broken apart, we're breaking apart the temple of God, we don't experience the fullness of his presence and his power on display in our lives if there's disunity or if we're isolated from the body of Christ. I love the way Nikki Gumbel puts it in the Alpha Course. He says there are two things in life that you absolutely cannot do by yourself. You cannot be married by yourself, and you cannot be the church by yourself, right? Because we together are the, the temple, and we together are the family. You can't be family on your own, right? Uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because Robert really unpacked this. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back, watch the message, tearing down walls to, to unpack that a little more. But there's another threat, another threat to these promises, and that threat is impurity. And this is what Paul picks up on here in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, when he calls us out because he recognizes that, that our sin in our lives actually jeopardizes and threatens the, the unity that we have, and it threatens the experience of being the temple where God's presence and power dwell and the family where his fatherly love is being experienced. And this is why, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have these promises, since we have the promise of being temple and family, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence, out of reverence for God, Perfecting holiness, this, this charge is like, do whatever it takes to remove the sin from your lives because the sin is going to threaten these promises of experiencing the presence of God as the temple and the love of God as, as his family. And we see, all right, we see how sin can threaten both of these. Now, I know that not everybody here is like bought into the Christian thing. Some of you are here because you're just curious, you're just checking things out. Some of you might be here because you're supporting somebody else. Some of you might have just been dragged here against your will. And so when you hear the preacher talk about sin, it just, I, I sound like a cliche and like every preacher and every TV show ever just like obsessed with your sin is going to find you out and God is going to smite you. Uh, I, I understand that I kind of like sound like a character talking talking about sin. It's a, it's a religious word that has all of this baggage and everything like that. But when we talk about sin, we're talking simply about the stuff that frustrates God and the stuff that offends him. Uh, I, I imagine you've experienced this before. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb and imagine there have been times in your life where you expected somebody to do something and they didn't do it. And it's frustrating, right? There's other times in your life where you expected somebody to do something in a certain way, and they did it, but not in the way that you expected. And that is frustrating, right? Like, it is frustrating when you find out that they didn't refill the toilet paper roll. Like, I expected you to do this. And it's equally frustrating when you find out that they filled it, but they did it under instead of over. Because there's really only one way to do it, and it's over, right? Thank you, yes. <laughs> Uh, and, and here's the thing, the more certain you are that your way is the right way, the more frustrating it is, right? The more frustrating it is when people don't do it what you believe to be the right way. Now imagine being God for just a second where you know the right way for everything. You're perfect in all ways. You know the right way in everything. And people constantly are deciding, I'm going to do it my way. I can't even imagine how frustrated he must be all the time as we constantly are just like, ah, I'll do it my way, right? But it's not just frustrating, it's offensive because we turn to the creator of the universe and we say, 
nah, no, I don't need you. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do it my way. I, I feel like I know better. That is, that is offensive to him. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about sin. I know it's like a religious word, but it really is just talking about the things that frustrate and offend our creator, God. And we could see how the, the frustrating and offensive things that we do to God can hinder our experience of temple and family, right? Because as the temple where God's spirit dwells and his power is on display, the reason, the reason for the temple and God's presence in the temple isn't for the people in the temple it's for the people out there. That God's presence dwells in the temple and his power is on display in the temple so that the temple can be assigned to the rest of the world of who this God is, right? That, that makes us, as the temple, God's spokespeople. We are his representatives, his, his ambassadors going out into the world. Imagine you owned a business, right? And you develop this product, right? And it's a really great product. And you decide to hire a salesperson. You send that salesperson out and they're marketing your new product. And every time they go out, they keep giving people a false impression of, of your product, a distorted image of your product. You're not gonna welcome them back in and say, oh, great job, I'm gonna give you more power and more authority and more responsibility. No, you're gonna pull them in, you're gonna say, you're doing this wrong. I'm going to actually have to take back some of your authority and your freedom because we need to get this right, right? And as God's spokespeople, as the temple of God on display for the world, if we are misrepresenting God, if we're distorting his image, he isn't going to continue to pour out his presence and his power on us as a sign of approval of the image that we're conveying in the world. And so you can see that this sin, it actually, it can threaten our experience of being the temple of God. But it's not just my sin affecting my experience because we are the temple. This is a corporate thing, which, which listen, because this, this is really important and it's kind of unsettling, but I think it's so important. My sin can undermine your calling. We don't like to think this way because as 21st century Westerners, we're very individualistic, probably the most individualistic society ever. But my sin can actually undermine your calling as the temple of the living God. Because we, together, are the temple. And we can also see how our impurity, it also threatens our experience of being the family of God. Where are my only children? Who's an only child? We got a few of you in here. All right, so you only children, this is gonna be a little harder for you to relate to than the rest of us. But you guys who have siblings, you know that when, when your parents were upset with your brother and sister about something, even if they didn't have a problem with you, that still impacted you. When there was tension in the home, even if it wasn't directed at you, you experienced that tension. That impacted your experience of family, right? I remember a few years back, there was this growing tension between my parents and one of my siblings. And even though I was very close with this sibling and very close with my family, their tension bled over into my life and it, it diminished my experience of family. Any child of divorce will tell you, it doesn't matter. You can have both parents who love you very deeply, but the tension that is experienced between the two of them is going to be felt and experienced by the kid. It affects our family. Now imagine somebody in your spiritual family is constantly doing stuff that frustrates and offends God. That is going to cause tension in the family. It's going to impact our experience of being the family of God. It doesn't change the fact that we are the family of God. Don't mishear me. But... It will impact our experience of being the family of God. 
This is why it matters. This is why Paul is willing to have the courage to confront the Corinthian church because he recognizes that, that we're in this together, right? The, the question then becomes, though, how do we do it? How do we do this well, right? Because our, our tendency is just say, you know what? Their sin is their problem. They'll deal with it. I'll deal with me. I'm not my brother's keeper, blah, blah, blah. But we see that it's too important. We have, to, we have to engage with these things. We can't let sin just go in our, our brothers and sisters, not if we love them, not if they're part of our family, not if they're part of the temple. But how do we do this well? Because we've seen so many bad examples. You know, you think of the extreme examples like the Inquisition or the Salem witch trials or uh, the Scarlet, Scarlet Letter. Anybody read the Scarlet Letter in high school, Nathaniel Hawthorne Scarlet, Scarlet Letter? I just want get to get out there and say this. Um, if I had to wear a Scarlet Letter just exposing my shame for all of high school, like all four years of high school, if I had to wear this scarlet letter on my chest, that would have been less painful than having to read the scarlet letter in high school. <laughs> just uh, if any English teachers are out there, the guy took like six pages to talk about like a handkerchief falling to the ground. It was awful. Uh, but we've, we've seen lots of really bad examples of how to do this. But here in 2 Corinthians 7, we get to see Paul and we get to see a really, really, really good example. In fact, even as I was looking at this this week, I was just in awe of how Paul handles this. And as we look through this passage, I want to just highlight seven requirements for Christian confrontation. Because it's necessary. We have, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, but it is essential to Christian community. But how we do it really does matter. So we're going to look at these five different requirements for Christian confrontation. The first one is that Christian confrontation requires a loving relationship. Look at verse 2 here in chapter 7. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts. Listen to this. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. He loves these people dearly. And there is a history of a relationship. It's not like he's telling them for the first time that he loves them. He's, this is a pattern that's been established. They know that he loves them. It's not like he just showed up one day and he's like, I love you, but you're terrible. Uh, you know, there's this, this relationship of love that exists here. And if we're going to come in and, and confront someone, a brother, and sister, a brother or sister in Christ, with their sin, we have to start with this relationship. And if we don't have that relationship, we're probably not the right person to confront them at that moment. I'm not saying that we do nothing. I'm just saying that we should start with the relationship. Now, I know that some of you might not be like the touchy-feely type, and you hear this, and you're like, oh my goodness, these oversensitive snowflakes. You got to jump through hoops in order to tell them they're being an idiot. Like, uh, and I get that. Like, there's, there's some of that. But uh, it goes beyond just sensitivity, right? Yes, sensitivity is good. Don't get me wrong. But it goes beyond sensitivity. There's a practicality to this. Because you guys know that your behavior actually comes from a, a deeper heart motivation, right? Our, all of our behavior, good and bad, comes from these deeper heart motivations. And you could have five people doing the same exact behavior, but each one can have a different motivation of the heart. And you can challenge somebody on their behavior, and you can even get them to stop their behavior, but if you don't address the issue in the heart, then very likely that behavior will kick up again, or they'll just find a new behavior that is equally bad or worse in that situation. 
But how are we supposed to confront somebody about the heart issue, not just the behavior, the heart issue, if we don't know them, if we don't love them, if we don't have this sort of intimate relationship with them? Otherwise, we're just going to be dealing with the symptoms and have no way to deal with the, the deeper disease. There, from just a practical, even if you're not the touchy-feely sensitive type, from a practical perspective, you see that we need to have a loving relationship with somebody before we decide we're the ones to step in and confront them about their sin. Right? And if you do have this urge to go in to confront someone about their sin and you don't know them that well and you don't genuinely love them, then in the words of the comedian John Christ, you need to check your heart. <laughs> because there's something going on in our hearts that we need to look at. If we have this urge to confront somebody that we don't even like, right? We need to check, check our hearts. Number two, Christian confrontation requires reluctance. Look at verse eight here. This, I know this sounds strange, but look at verse eight. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. As you, you read him talk about his, his whole situation, he's like, I, I regretted it, and then I didn't regret it, and I, uh, you know, I'm happy now, but I was sad. And, and there's this kind of like wishy-washy flip-flopping going back and forth because Paul, he recognized that he needed to do this, right? He knew how important it was, but he was really reluctant to do this. He understood the weight of this. Robbie Gallaty, he says, the responsibility of confronting another believer about sin is a high and holy one. It should always humble us. Anybody who is eager or excited about it has the wrong spirit and will likely do more harm than good. The right spirit in confrontation always extends grace, never results in disgrace. I have to be honest, there are times in my life where I wanted to confront somebody about what they were doing and I was eager to do it and my primary motivation was that I just wanted to put them in their place. Like I wanted them to feel the wrath of Trevor. I wanted to punish them because of what they did and, and the weight of it and it bothered me. And here, and here you see Paul and you see that he had absolutely no satisfaction in the sorrow that it brought them. Zero satisfaction. The only satisfaction is in the, the repentance. He was reluctant to go in. He knew the importance, but he wasn't happy about it. He wasn't eager to just go in and cause this pain. He saw the weight of these things. And if we're eager to go in and we wanna just give them a piece of our mind and let them feel the wrath of us in these situations, then once again, we go to the wise words of John Christ because you need to check your, help me out here, heart. Check your heart because there's probably something going on there. Number three, Christian confrontation requires hope for repentance. He continues on here in verse nine. It says, for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Paul, his, his driving motivation behind all of this was this hope for repentance that would lead to salvation and restoration. For Paul, Christian confrontation, it wasn't punitive, it was redemptive the whole time. The whole time. Uh, 
there's a, a Christian singer songwriter. His name is Matthew West. Some of you might be familiar with him. He has songs on K Love and stuff like that. Uh, but years ago, Matthew West was putting together an album, and he he did something cool. He put it out to the public and said, you know, send in your stories. And he started collecting all these people's stories and reviewing these stories. And he took some of these stories and started writing songs about them. Uh, and I wanted to share you, with you the story bef- uh, behind his song called Restored. So I got a story from a guy named Joe, and he wrote to me about his marriage, and unfortunately, it it wasn't all pretty. Um, He was really quite candid and open and honest, so I was really intrigued by Joe's story. Cheryl and I got married uh, way back in 1980. Through the years, we started to drift apart a little bit, uh, just because we kind of left God out of the picture. We started missing church and then not going to church at all and you know not getting involved in a devotional life prayer life anything and i uh, i ended up having an affair but uh through that i was in such turmoil i was in so torn um because i thought i was doing what i wanted to do but my spirit knew <laughs> that i didn't belong in there and I, I belonged home uh Finally, uh, uh, one weekend, it, it all came to a head. So he was home one day packing his suitcase, never to return. When I came home, I told her I was going to leave. And uh, <laughs> I was getting some stuff together. And, of course, she was kind of helping me by, you know, throwing my stuff at me and <laughs> tearing it out of my closet and drawers. And When he got a phone call from an old friend that he used to have Bible study and coffee with, Hadn't heard from him in a long time. His friend didn't even know why he was calling. He just said he felt like he was supposed to call and check in. I got on the phone with with Don, and uh, we talked, and he reminded me where I came from, who I was, and what I was doing. And the Spirit just moved me at that time, and it all made sense to me. And I said, what am I doing? And uh, Don and I together, I, I, I called the girl I was having an affair with, and I told her, I can't do this. I said, I'm going back to God, and I'm going back to my wife. And so Joe uh, really had a defining moment in the story of his life and the story of his marriage. And instead of uh, driving off with that suitcase, never coming home, he turned that car back around, and he went back to his house. And he wrote to me, he said, you know, I expected when I pulled in the driveway to find all my things out in the front lawn. She was outside waiting for me. I got out of the van. I ran to her. She ran to me. And I can't even describe that moment to you, the feeling that I had. I knew I messed up, but I knew she was there for me. And, uh, and we decided to rebuild. And it wasn't easy, Road. It wasn't easy. But through God, we're restored. I love that story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, a powerful story. Uh, and for me, it's a very personal story. Joe and Cheryl are lifelong friends. They used to babysit me when I was a, a kid. Uh, in fact, this is uh, my, my father and his wife with Joe and Cheryl. Uh, and my dad is Don. So when Joe mentions there's this guy, Don, who came over and confronted, sorry. <laughs> uh, it was my dad who came and confronted him in this moment 
And I remember hearing uh, about all of this unfolding. And, you know, in this moment, Joe's sin, uh, it wasn't just about Joe. It didn't only affect him. It didn't even only affect Cheryl. It affected the whole community. It hurt us all. And in that moment, my dad had the courage to not, not, not just let it happen, not to say this is something you need to worry, but to confront him in that moment. But he did so in such a way where he was hopeful for repentance. He didn't go in guns blazing, trying to just tear him down, tell him, look, you idiot, that you're wasting everything. You're throwing everything away. No, he came in with his hope that Joe would repent and he would be restored. And in the end, we, we get to see restoration. I mean, it's just more than a decade now, I think, this uh, all went down. And now Joe and Cheryl are continue, continue to be married. Their marriage is better than ever. And they're like, they host a small group and uh, like they're, they're thriving in their relationship with God. But it started with somebody who was willing to confront them, but to confront them with the, the hope for repentance. And here's how you can know if you're confronting with the hope of repentance versus confronting with the hope of just punishing them. Here's how you can know. If you're confronting them with the, the intention of punishing them, you're going to identify them with their sin. But if you're hoping to confront them for repentance, you're going to identify them with who they are in Christ. And this is what I love about this story. When Joe tells this story, he says, my dad came over and he came and he, he said, Joe, this is not who you are. And he reminded him of where he came from and who he was in Christ because he had this hope that God had the power to redeem a broken situation and bring this restoration. And it happened. This is what happens when we have this hope of restoration. Now, confrontation isn't seen as a knife to cut people down. Now we can see confrontation as a scalpel, a scalpel that when used in just the right way can be a tool for healing. I love what uh, Johann Christoph Arnold says. He says, most churches today shy away from confronting people in sin. Unfortunately, because of this, members who stumble and fall have little chance for repentance, let alone new beginning. See, when we shy away from this, when we shy away from this, we're robbing people of the opportunity to be restored. But when we offer this hope for repentance, we get to see stories like this unfold. But if we come in, guns blazing, looking to tear people down, if our, our hope is to punish them, then again, we need to check our hearts because we're probably coming with the wrong motivation, with something wrong in us. There's two more. Number four, public advocacy. Public advocacy is a requirement for Christian confrontation. This is where Paul just takes it to the next level, in my opinion. Go down to verse 13. Verse 13, he says, By all this we are encouraged. In addition to your own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. 14, he says, I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. Just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved true as well. You see what's going on here? Paul, this whole time, before he hears about their repentance, Paul is boasting about the Corinthian church. Like, you know how we tend to do things. Somebody sins, and we talk to everybody about their sin except that person. Paul, on the other hand, he, he privately sends a letter to confront the Corinthians, but publicly he advocates for them. 
And he's boasting about them. He is their biggest fan. He's just like singing the praises of the Corinthians to Titus, who is, Titus is a close friend and a confidant. He could have opened up and said, man, the Corinthians, man, they're the worst. They're, they're going through, but he doesn't. Instead, he boasts about them to the point where if they didn't repent, Paul says he would have been embarrassed by it. He actually put himself on the line boasting for them. Our confrontation of Christians, it requires this public advocacy where, yes, we might confront them privately, but we're talking to others about what's good and redeemable and hopeful about these people, looking at the best qualities. And if we can't, if we are just so blinded by their sin that that's all we can see in them and we want to confront them, then once again, you need to check your heart because there's probably something wrong in here that needs to be dealt with. Number five, Christian confrontation requires celebration. Why does 2 Corinthians 7 exist? Like as a chapter, why does it exist? Because Paul is writing to the Corinthians about something that happened between him and the Corinthians. They know what happened. They're part of the story. Why is he writing this? He's circling back and he's reminding them what happens because he's celebrating the restoration that God brought about in their lives. And we need to celebrate when these things happen. We need to tell these stories. We need to share them with the world. We need to just pause for a moment and, and say, this is awesome. I was lost and now I'm found. You guys might remember the, the story of the prodigal son, many of you. This is a story where a son runs off and squanders everything his father has and then comes back with his tail between his legs and his father welcomes him home. And Jesus tells this story, but it's the third of three stories of losing something and finding it. In the first one, there's a shepherd who loses a sheep and he finds it and he brings it back. And then there's a woman who loses a coin and she turns the house upside down and finds it. And then there's this story of the lost son coming back. All three stories end exactly the same way. It ends with a party. It ends with this massive celebration because what was lost is found. And I think this is so important. When we are willing to confront somebody about their sin, we better be eager, eager to celebrate when we get to see restoration happen. Because this, this is what the cross is all about. It's all about restoring broken, sinful people. This is what we come here on Sunday to celebrate. So what we come to the table of communion to celebrate. The cross is all about this. Because at the cross, we're reminded that sin is too serious to ignore. We're reminded that we can't just sweep it under the rug. We can't just pretend it's not happening. We're reminded that God, God would sooner send his son to be murdered on a cross to pay the heavy price for our sin than ignore it and look past it because sin is serious. But it's also at the cross that we are reminded that forgiveness has already been purchased. It is available. And no matter how far our brother or sister strays, no matter what sin they fall into, they are not beyond restoration. That's the God we serve. And that's what we celebrate. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Uh, and as we do, uh, we're going to just take a moment to prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's Supper, to be reminded that each and every one of us, we have our own stories of restoration already, probably multiple stories where we've strayed and we've done those things that offend God and frustrate him. And whether it came through the help of one of our brothers or sisters or not, we've been restored when we've repented and clung to the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus.